Canuck Central, Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. This hour of Canuck Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler. Serving BC businesses since 1892. So we're going to get to a lot of things here. And Jonathan Bates, former Vancouver Canucks NHL scout, will be joining us. There's a clip from Trent Cull we want to get to a little bit later on in this segment. And we will do that. Continue talking about the Stanley Cup playoffs as well. Brent Gunning is going to join us. See if Lee fans are already celebrating a first-round win a little bit prematurely. Kidding aside, that was an incredible game last <laughs> night. Yes. And the hockey is fun. The hockey is good. First playoff r- hockey is great. Let's see more of it in Vancouver, please. First-round playoff hockey is always the most fun playoff hockey. We'll see how, how it goes uh, as a series go on. Attrition starts to kind of build up. But, yes, it's been far too long before we've seen since we've seen playoff hockey in Vancouver. Yeah. Go back all the way to 2015. Yeah, it's been Seven a while. years. It's a long time. No uh, no home games during the bubble hockey uh, from nope. a couple of years ago. Uh, joining us now here on the program, former NHL scout with the Vancouver Canucks, Jonathan Bates. Thanks for this, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're, we're doing really well. It's um interesting time of the year for the Vancouver Canucks as uh, – you know, their season is done, so they're watching the playoffs, but they're getting their offseason underway. It's a new front office now in place with uh, Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford heading it. And they're, they're going through their amateur and pro scouting meetings. So we kind of wanted to get a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at just what exactly happens and when teams are going through their amateur and pro scouting meetings. Uh, you meet and you eat. That's pretty much how it works. Um so are we talking Big Macs or like, is it like a catered meal? Like well, how, how are we going for the meal here? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you're not hungry. The NHL stands for never hungry league. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's a fun time of year. It's, it's fun for a lot of reasons, right? You're, you're obviously, it's the culmination of, of your scouting season. It's, it's a time for you to evaluate where your team was um, at the NHL American league level and then kind of look ahead to, to your position as a scout, uh, prepare for the draft, prepare for free agency, and and prepare for the the next season. Uh, so what are what are those guys doing now? Um, a, a few different things. Number one, they're <clears throat> excuse me on the amateur side, they're compiling their lists, right? Both regional lists, area lists, master lists, um, and and position specific lists, prepping for the draft, um, evaluating talent. Obviously, that that's kind of come to a halt, but. Uh, but now it's time to put that talent in order and figure out who you like and, and why you like them. Um, you're prepping for the NHL combine. Who do you want to speak with? Who's attending the combine? Uh, what, if anything, do you need to kind of dig in on with certain players, character issues, uh, character checks, that kind of thing. Uh, you're discussing your prospect pool, areas of weakness. You know, I'm of the belief that you want to take the best player available in the draft, but you still need to know where you might be a little short uh, in your prospect pool and, and kind of take that into consideration. What voids are there? Uh, what can you do, do to kind of figure out, you know, how to fix them and, and boost that, uh, you know, boost that prospect pool? And then, of course, um, you want, obviously, to to bring an opinion to those meetings and, and, and bring an argument. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always enjoyed this time of year because you had 
a lot of guys that started really banging the table for their players, you know, guys that, that they watch for two, three, four years develop. And, and now it's time to make a decision on whether or not they're going to be a Vancouver Canuck. And, and, and that's when the passion really came through. So it's, it's a really fun time of year to, uh, um, to be a scout. Well, we just mentioned, and, and that scouting phrase of banging the table really is, you know, somebody standing on the table, you know, it's not always actually somebody doing something that dramatic. But to your point, though, uh, how much credibility, do, though, do you put out there when you bang the table for a guy? And, and let's say that if that works out, I mean, you're going to build a lot of credit with your group. But if you really bang the table for a guy and you end up and they end up drafting him and it doesn't work out, how much of a hit does a scout take when they put themselves out there? that hard uh i mean you know it's that's probably a question honestly for the higher ups i think that you know i've never really been in a position to to sort of you know critique somebody that way mm-hmm. i can tell you that they do earn a lot of respect at least they did for me um you know guys that really pushed uh it shows their passion and and you know um it shows that they want to get better right i mean the one thing that can kind of be lost in translation a little bit with this job is it's incredibly subjective. You know, if I see a player play um, against the best team in the league and they lose one, nothing, um, you know, obviously he had no points, but was minus one, um, but really put it all out there. He did everything he, he, he needed to, to win, but you saw a player play against, um, you know, the worst team in the league and he really wasn't engaged and it turned out that he was sick or whatever it was, or he was doing poorly in school or whatever it is. Like, you know, you have to figure out a way to make those subjective, um, make the job objective, even though it's really subjective, if that makes sense. Um, You know, does, does it take a hit? Does the the individual scout take a hit from that? Maybe. Um, But, you know, uh, if, if you have an argument, if you have an opinion, in my in in my opinion, if you can support it with some you know solid evidence, then I think that you're positioning yourself well and you're doing the job well. This uh, might be might be a bit uh, of a curveball, but can you share any players that that you were banging the table on? Oh gosh, well I'm no longer employed there, so it probably shows how I how I did, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I'm I'm just kidding. No. Um, no, I mean, you know, listen, it would be unfair of me to sit here, you know, years later and say, oh, I wish we took that guy or, you know, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, what What's done is done. Um, I can say that uh, it was a lot of fun when I uh, when I did that job. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed listening to people's opinions and and you learn pretty quick, honestly, like the guys that really were passionate about the job and guys that, you know, were just kind of there. Um, I'm not looking to throw stones in anybody, but um, the guys that were really passionate about it, um, you know, they were recognized and, and rightfully so. Jonathan Bates, our guest. Uh, so y- you mentioned lists earlier, uh, master lists, sure. regional lists. And um, c- can you take us into a little bit more about how that master list is is kind of compiled and then you know, when it does get to draft day, are you just selecting the top player on that, on that master list? Yeah. uh, You know, you obviously, you have your director of amateur scouting. Uh, The majority of my tenure there was uh, at least in recent years was Judd Brackett, obviously, you know, tremendous amount of success in his short, short time there. Um, And then now in, in, uh, in Minnesota rather, but 
Um, you know, him and, and the crossover scouts, guys that uh, are, you know, are, are hitting each region, they are seeing pretty much the top 90 players roughly. I mean, they're seeing as many guys as they can over the course of the season, but they're really focusing on, on the top 90, the top players from each region. They're going to see them multiple times. They're working with the regional scouts to identify uh, those top-end talents and guys that maybe are going to be there in the first three, four rounds. And, and and they're really the ones that are putting that together with input from everybody else. Um, it, within your region, you know, in the United States, for example, you have a few different scouts here, obviously your head scout in the U.S. and then a couple of regionalized guys in territories within the United States. They are looking at, at players in their backyard and working directly with the head of that region to compile the regional list. Um, and it's same for, for all the other regions across the globe. Um, and then they're, they're, they're hashing it out, so to speak. You know, you like player, I, player A here, I like player B here. A is, is three spots lower on my list compared to yours. Why? Let's talk about it. Where did you see him play? How was he that night? What off-ice issues was he dealing with? Oh, he was playing center that night when he's typically playing wing? Okay, that makes sense. Why? You know? You, you got to discuss those different um, uh, those different touch points over the course of the season and and figure out um, you know how how and where they're going to fall on on the master list um, and then position specific lists you know obviously you kind of focus on your top ninety roughly top sixty to ninety and then after that um, everybody else typically each region has uh, a few other guys that they like maybe for mid to late round picks and they want to uh, to hone in or sort of identify those guys, um, uh, you know, in those later rounds. <clears throat> well, and, and also, like, the big reality is, you know, teams don't can't watch every player. So, like, sometimes, like, how you kind of come to the conclusion of who to watch and how to come up with that list. Because, I mean, the thought on the outside sometimes is that, you know, an organization will watch 300 players and have reports on 300 different guys. But it's really not that comprehensive, is it? I mean, it, I, I can't speak for other, other teams. I don't think it is. But, um, you know, to me, that just sounds like a waste of time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you go see 300 players each, you know, a handful of times, what good is that going to do? You know, like if you really focus in on, on the top end guys and you learn everything inside and out about them, then in my opinion, you're going you're gonna to have some success. You could have success the other way. I don't know. But um, but that's kind of my belief. I think, um, you know, I think that you really need to rely and listen to those regional scouts, though, those guys that are, are um, pounding the pavement for those, you know, those big jamborees, those big, you know, eight, eight games in a day tournaments, um, those showcases, that sort of thing, because there are players that come out of that. You know, I mean, I remember my first year scouting, um, Judd, and, Judd and I spent – the better part of a weekend in, in a rink up in, in um, New Hampshire watching, I, I think we saw 16 to 18 games over the course of two days. And, and one guy was in there and he's, he's a pretty good player, Brian DeMoulin. You know, he ended up going second round to, to Carolina that year. And, and um, you know, he's had himself a pretty, pretty darn good college or uh, excuse me, NHL career. So, um, you know, you need to rely on those guys. If you're going to find success. 
Well, and you know, you know, kind of building off of that, the 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 other thing that I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on is when you can decide to trade down, and when you decide to kind of trade up, because it's easy to say, hey, just trade down when you're when you're at your spot, but a lot of that kind of comes down to where your tiers at. So when a team decides to trade down from say a top ten, top fifteen spot. What's the number one thing that you take into consideration? Is it A, the package, or what tier you're in when that selection comes up? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the package is probably more of a GM question. That's, you know, that's the the guy in the big chair. That's a a Jim Rutherford, Patrick Alvin question. But, you know, in in terms of, of the message and communication between GM and scout, you need to have those guys identified you know, when you when you compile your master list, you essentially need to have lines or sections or tiers, um, and you need to assess value to that. You know, these top three guys are worth, um, you know, a, a top six forward or a top four defenseman that is going to, you know, eat minutes for you and and play, uh, you know, 25 minutes a night, put up 40 plus point, whatever it is. You need to have that that kind of um, you know, equality and value if you are going to, uh, to make those kinds of deals. And, and, you know, that's, that's a really important exercise that you need to do. That's more for draft week, I would say, um, you know, when you really kind of start digging into it, um, you know, y- you need to know those players on your list and, and essentially what they're worth. So best player available. Is, is it always as black and white as just take best player available? I mean, like, who do you think the best player available is? You know? I mean, it, it's like, it, it's, that's why I always laugh when, you know, I say it too. I'm, I'm not being critical of anybody. I, you know, take the best player available. Um, but, you know, that's your opinion today. Um, so, you know, that's where the research is, is really important. Um, guys have, your scouting staff has to be willing to do the work, you yeah. know, and there's a lot more to scouting. There is a lot more to scouting than just going to watch hockey games. If you're doing it right, you know, if you're doing it right, I'd say watching hockey games is 25% of the job. I really do. Uh, Jonathan, uh, really appreciate this. Uh, it's been a really good insight onto uh, how the process goes through. Uh, thanks for this. We'll talk soon. Best to everybody. Thanks for having me on guys. Uh, there is uh, Jonathan Bates, former uh, NHL scout with the Vancouver Canucks, giving us a uh, behind the scenes kind of look at how uh, amateur and pro scouting meetings mm-hmm. go, which the Canucks are going through right now. Yeah, and I find that stuff really interesting about um, how you come up with your tiers and what value you assign to yeah. that tier. And I think that's the big determination into where you decide to trade down from. And, you know, if, if the value is too high, you won't do it. And, it, you know, that's kind of where it kind of comes in. And we'll see what the Canucks do at number 15. Like Rutherford came out, sorry, Alvin said yesterday they believe 4-16 to 16 oh. is the same tier essentially so if they trade out that means he wasn't <laughs> or or doesn't uh, he doesn't think that tier is all that strong yeah or maybe it's not as wide as he believes it is so and and look it's still early in the process what are we two months out from the actual nhl draft so things may change mm-hmm. by the time draft week comes around and how the canucks or most teams feel about certain players there's always going to be one guy that starts shooting up draft boards and mock drafts, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. But um, fascinating look at uh, how the whole process goes 
with Jonathan Bates. Now, it's easy to just like draft great players <laughs> and talents. You know, a lot of players when they get drafted, super talented. Mm-hmm. But how do you bring them into the pro game and develop them to a level that they can help your hockey team? Not every guy is going to be a top six forward. Not every defenseman is going to be a power play quarterback. <laughs> how do you develop players to integrate into your pro system and get them serving time for your NHL team. It's a huge part of developing a quality program in the NHL and something the Canucks have not really done all that well, Sad. Are you saying development matters? Yes, I'm saying that. Novel concept. I'm not saying development matters. I'm just saying. (laughs) It might be important. (laughs) Uh, I mean, and... I know you're alluding to the discussion uh, Halford and Bruff had this morning with Trent Call, uh, the Abbotsford Canucks head coach. And we'll play the clip here in a second. But, uh, you know, it it was very interesting hearing his thoughts on development. Yeah. And how it's not always the coach's decision Mm -hmm. who comes and who goes. Right. Coach can probably give their opinion. At the end of the day, it's not their decision. Uh, let's hear from Trent Call, who was a guest on Halford and Bruff and brings up specifically Adam Gaudette, who could have used more seasoning in the AHL when talking about how to develop players. There's got to be some patience, too. Right? I mean, you know, just, just off the top of my head, you know, like I've been in the Tampa organization. I've worked there. Like, in, unless those guys are, you know, utter superstars, too. I mean, everybody spends time in Syracuse, New York before they go to Tampa. So, um, so that would be a bit of a difference right there. And just, just a, a, a great example would be someone like Adam Gaudet. Like, why wouldn't he have spent two years with us so we can groom him and get him better? And, and hopefully, and, and the goal is to get a more rounded, finished product before he's out of his entry-level contract to Vancouver. You know what I mean? As opposed to something that's maybe rushed and, uh, and it's not as, as finished of a product. Because we all know in the NHL, even though I still believe development still needs to happen, that it's a results-driven league, and I understand that. So, but you know, sometimes we have to have a, a I guess, a greater look. And I, and I know from being inside those organizations, I was there. Like that, we have to be patient, and that's one of the things that uh, you know I, I see with the new regime coming in that. You know, it's about doing the right things. Like, like that's the first time in my five years that Pod Colson was sent down, as opposed to you know the last time we we're in playoffs, uh, Archibald couldn't go on waivers because they were afraid of losing him. Um, so, it, it's a different mindset, that's for sure, and I think that's the right one to have for us moving forward. So there is uh, Trent Cole, who um, has taken some heat this week as part of. You know, the Abbotsford season not ending the way that uh, people thought it should. Uh, the Klimovich and Jet Wu thing. And just overall lack of development from players from the AHL roster to the NHL in the time that he's been there. Um, it's fair to put some on Trent Call, And it's really interesting to hear some specific examples where he thought players could use more time developing. And... That's not a surprise because a lot of the stuff about Adam Gaudet, he was good, he played well, he earned his spot because there weren't other credible players in front of him. Yeah. So that kind of comes down to roster construction. Like, or do you have players in place that can 
that can keep an organization from rushing a guy up. It's easy for Tampa to hold guys in the AHL. Exactly. They don't have the rush to do so. Now, a lot of that is philosophy. A lot of that is what you're trying to accomplish and everything you are doing as a team. And sometimes it's just the pressures of what has to happen as well. And how much pressure do you feel as an organization to bring a young guy in? And how much how much of, of an emphasis do you put on those young guys? I mean, under Benning, there was a lot of talk consistently about rookies coming in and being impact players. And yeah, it happened with Pedersen and Hughes and, and Besser and all those sort of things. But And even Hoaglander to a lesser extent. But it's not that they come in and develop as well. All those guys have had some struggles because they didn't have to go through that development. And, and I'm not suggesting for a moment Pedersen, Besser, or Hughes should have spent a, a, a minute playing the AHL. I'm not suggesting that at all. But the rest of those players, they were also kind of brought up because the team felt, hey, these young guys are the ones that are going to help us you know, put ourselves over the top. We, we were capped out. We our, our veterans aren't the ones coming through. We need our young guys to be the guys that elevate us. Well, that's expecting too much and asking too much. And it's, at some cases, coming at the expense of a player's development. You can't take shortcuts, man. Anything in life, you can't take shortcuts. And I think about Nils Hoaglander now. You know, the season that he just had, nobody expected the, the rookie year that he had. But mm-hmm. you know, there's clearly some things in his game that he has to work on and probably could have benefited from some time in the AHL. Stan Richo and Satyar Shaw. All right. It's time to take a look at what's going on with some of the games as we bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. As you look at two games ongoing right now, the Rangers, who are up against it, down 2 nothing now to the Pittsburgh Penguins, need the win. You can look at the Rangers paying 540 on the money line at playnow.com to come back and win that one. Or the Washington Capitals have a one nothing lead on the Florida Panthers through one period. Panthers even money to come back in that one. So uh, you're not getting a lot of juice from Florida to come back from a one-goal deficit. No, not, not a ton. So uh, usually that kind of holds firm with heavy favorites coming in. The line doesn't move too much. But even money is not too bad. Uh, for that. I mean, hey, looking ahead, though, to the game tonight between the Dallas Stars and the Calgary Flames. Yeah. 2.85 for Dallas Stars on money line. You like that? I don't mind it. It's been a really close series. It has been. 2.85 is a lot of value. We'll take a look more at the uh, Dallas Stars and Calgary Flames coming up uh, in the next hour, and we'll have that game for you here on Sportsnet 650 tonight. You are listening to Canuck Central. It's time for the playoff goal horn. As mentioned, the Pittsburgh Penguins getting another one on the board. Chris Letang scoring what may be a dagger for the New York Rangers. Letang makes it 2-0 for the Penguins. They are midway through the second period. You can watch that on Sportsnet. Rangers up against elimination here in this game five. Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. This is... Canuck Central, the playoff goal horn is brought to you by Surrey Cedar. For quality cedar products, visit their two lower mainland locations in Langley or Port Coquitlam. This is Sportsnet 650.
This hour of Canuck Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. A little bit of a uh, developing story here, an update from uh, Rob Simpson and Vancouver Hockey Now on the Bruce Boudreaux situation, uh, an exclusive with Bruce Boudreaux from Rob Simpson. And essentially... Boudreaux is saying, I'd like to remain the coach of the Vancouver Canucks, and he's just taking a breather here. I have as special a relationship with these players in Vancouver as I did with the guys in Washington on my first NHL job, but does say that there are a couple of things they need to iron out. So as of right now, that's where things stand with Bruce Boudreaux sat. Yeah, and usually when it comes to last few things to iron out, oftentimes, and like um, Simmer, and that's a good scoop by, by Rob Simpson, uh, and to be able to get uh, Boudreaux on record, and mentions it's not term, it's not about money, there are other details. And usually the biggest detail a coach likes to work out is his staff. What does that look like? And I don't have no information on who he wants to bring in or who he wants to change, if he wants to change anybody or whom uh, the organization may want to bring in. But my understanding is that's oftentimes the big thing to overcome at the end before you decide who to to bring a guy back. It's okay. I want to be back. You want, you, you guys want me to be back. So what does the staff look like? That might be the details they have to work out. Uh, the pessimist in some Vancouver fans are saying, no, what he's actually doing is waiting for the Leafs to lose in the first round so that potentially that job opens up. Let's bring in our next guest. It is Brent Gunning, uh, host the Leafs Nation postgame show on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. What's happening, Brent? Oh, I'm doing good, Reach. I, I think Barry Trotz is slightly ahead of him on the <laughs> hypothetical uh, coaching hires there. But yes, I'd be... I'd be lying if I didn't see some of those uh, same jokes flying around last night in the first period. Yeah, uh, so uh, at 2 nothing, um, it was pretty incredible seeing Leafs Nation melting down. And then, of course, everything else happens, and they end up winning the game. Just a roller coaster of emotions, an incredible hockey game, an instant classic. But there's no way of knowing what the heck is going to happen in Game 6 for this series. It's just been that crazy. No, there, there's not. And, you know, like, you, I mean, Reach, you know, you can imagine what the atmosphere is like here. It's people on both sides of the spectrum. You know, I have uh, talking to a lot of people, people saying, look, last night was different. Last night was different. Now they're going to go and close things out in Game 6. But this team has had so many of these this was different moments before that I, I don't know that I can wholly buy in and believe it until the clock strikes zero on the fourth win in a series because, you know, I go back to the bubble. And you know what happened there? It felt like the Leafs had their crazy comeback and they charged to force a game five. And then they couldn't get on the board at all in, in a do-or-die game five. You know, they had so many chances against Montreal and inevitably couldn't close it out. So, yeah, last night was huge. The fact that every guy you need to came through in a big way, it, it does feel a little different. But I, I don't know that I could believe it until I actually see it. And that certainly seems to be the sentiment overall. I mean, it was it was Jekyll and Hyde just kind of watching Leafs Twitter from afar uh, in that first period and then how the game really changed and flipped on its head in the third and how they came away with that victory. But 
I mean, I think that's the big issue here is that even if they, if you get to a game seven on home ice, is there going to be a fear of the ghosts kind of hanging over the, over the Leafs? I mean, is there a sense that maybe your best chance to get this done is getting it done in game six? I, I'm of two minds on that because, the, look, here's the thing. I, I wish they weren't, but the ghosts are real. The ghosts are real for the people who are sitting in that building watching it uh, in the Amazon series. They took a look at this team. The management was saying the ghosts are real for this group that has been through this so many times before. I don't think you can let it get back for a game seven because of all that. Maybe this is the time that Matthews is a different player and Marner is better than he's been in the past. And you have Jack Campbell, who's finally giving you good enough goaltending. Maybe it is different, but it just, with everything that this team has been through, chances to close it out at home in the past, and it's never come to fruition. Part of me does say, yes, tomorrow, game six in Tampa is the best shot. But the other part of me says, I know how these games in Tampa have looked. And the Leafs, without the last change, it's been a bit of an issue for them. Tampa has really kind of won the matchup battle in those games. So, yes, you don't want to let it get back to to home ice for Game 7 because of everything that's happened, but it's going to be far from easy in Tampa for Game 6 just because because of the matchup battle. Uh, I need you to be real with me here. Why do Leaf fans, and so many Leaf fans, hate William Nylander? So it is (laughs) – here's the thing. It's that he is – he is a peg beneath – we can remove Tavares from this now because that's kind of a whole other conversation in and of itself. But he is 1,000% a peg below Matthews and Marner. That's why he makes like $3 bucks less a year. But they are always thought of, and we'll throw Tavares in there now, as the core four. They're always lumped together. And you say, well, hold on a second. The two guys who play together are having MVP seasons or, you know, MVP level seasons. Mitch Marner, basically a 100-point guy. Austin Matthews scored 60. Why can't William Nylander give me 45 or something? And I think that sometimes part of it is that the expectations are a touch too high. But the other part of it is, is that this is a player who it's brain cram central for. And you constantly have to poke and prod him. And the conversation today being, despite how wonderful he was in that game last night, was how do you convince him that that never happened so that he comes out and plays guilty thinking he had a bad game? Because seemingly every time the conversation turns to William Nylander and it's, oh, no, you're not getting enough out of this guy. He has the game of his life. So, yes, the criticism is for sure too intense at times. People are way too quick to say, oh, trading that guy will fix everything. But on a night-to-night basis, you just don't get it in the same way you do from the other stars on this team. And because of the fact that he just has that laissez-faire attitude, which I think in a market like this honestly can really help you at a lot of times, but there will always be those little moments where you can, you know, I'm sure you guys saw the clip from, I think it was game four of him mm-hmm. just pulling up and not trying to engage in a puck battle at all. Those clips are going to come up from time to time and that stuff drives people nuts. And I think to a certain extent, rightfully so, but people are also way too quick to try to run them out of town. Yeah. I mean, no doubt about that. And you're, you know, you mentioned that John Tavares is kind of the guy that now all of a sudden is taking heat. And I understand because his contract is absolutely massive. And in the postseason, it seems like he just doesn't have that other gear. Like, what what do you make of his game? Is is this something that goes back to what happened last year and the injury? Or does the pace pick up too much for him in the postseason? Like, what's the working theory for why John Tavares is a struggling by his standards this year, but also why he's taking a step back in the postseason? 
So I think of all of the Leafs stars or superstars, he is the most kind of horses for courses guy. The type of game he's going to play in really matters the most for him. And not that Tampa Bay wants to be trading chances all night long. This isn't exactly the Florida Panthers, but they like to move it. You know, you look at the you look at the pace of that game last night, and I know Tavares played very well, but you look at the pace of that game and it was flying. And it just feels like the faster the game is, the less effective he is. You know, he makes a wonderful play to set up Morgan Riley for a huge, huge goal last night. And all that stuff John Tavares can still do. He's just kind of being patient and slithering behind or under or below the faceoff dots and behind the net and trying to use his body to protect. He can still do all that stuff. This was a guy who was close to a point-per-game player, I think 76 points in 79 games this year. So depending on the matchup, this is still a guy who can be incredibly effective for you, but I don't think Tampa Bay is the series for them. You know, I've got Pittsburgh, New York on in front of me, and in a bit of a grindier series, you know, it feels to me like he, he could kind of excel there. So He's not an $11 million guy, and people are definitely talking about that. But I also think the idea that he is completely cooked is, uh, is a little far-fetched as well. What's the thing that's going to stop you from sleeping tonight? Oh, just everything. You know, I was, uh, I'm trying to think. I, 2004, so I was still in high school the last time the Leafs won a playoff series. Now right. I'm in my 30s and have a child. So, it's, I mean, we've been through this so many times before. We've come oh so close. I was convinced it was happening against Montreal last year. I'm a little less convinced this time. So just just everything, you know, just half of my life wanting to see something <laughs> happening, uh, that's what will keep me up uh, tonight. And then hopefully I don't have to worry about it beyond tomorrow because uh, I don't know that I'll ever sleep again if there is a Game 7. I mean, yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask you about Sheldon Keith here for a second. I mean, he's a guy who's taken some heat. And, you know, all of a sudden with how he handled the question about Justin Hole and how he brought him in and the team had success and how he handled the postgame availability and mentioned they still have another game to go, it seems like people have more confidence in, in Sheldon Keefe. But where, where do you where do you kind of see the meter on him and where the gauge is on him and his abilities and how much hinges on him being able to get this team through this series? The biggest knock on him over the past couple of playoffs now has been exactly what I talked about for, for tomorrow's Game 6 is can you get your guys something close to a matchup you want on the road? You know, you're not going to get exactly the matchup you want. You don't have last change. But we go back to last year when it was the Canadians knocking the Leafs out and Philippe Deneau was all over Matthews. And he, there was no way that Keith was able to kind of free him up from that matchup. Now, you can say, hey, Matthews, go win your minutes. And I think that's a totally fair thing to say. But the other part of that is, is on Keith. If there's one area that I think he's come up a little short there in this series, it's been that. But part of that is, well, you're going up against the Tampa team that has three great lines that they can throw out against the Leafs' top three lines. So it, do, it definitely makes that task a lot harder. You know, in terms of all the other stuff a coach does, you know, who does he play with whom? Does he take the right temperature of the team? What does he say following following wins or losses for that matter? How does he control the temperature? How does he control the media? I really think Keith does a really, really good job with all of that stuff. And the other thing I like about him is he, for me, he has just the right amount of tinkering. You know, it is not a constant blender where it's new lines every single period, but this is a guy who hasn't been hesitant all throughout the season to try different combinations. So now in the playoffs, when they have had to shake things up, 
You're not trying combinations that have never, ever played together before. There is some familiarity, even if you're jumbling the lines in this series. So I think, I think Keith, definitely there are a little bit of areas where you can criticize him. No coach is perfect, but I think having said all of that, and specifically with the line matching stuff, I, I really do like the way he's handled this series. He is uh, Brent Gunning. Thanks for this, man. Hey, always fun. Thanks, Sat. Thanks, Reach. Yep. Uh, there is Brent Gunning, uh, Sportsnet 5.9 to the fan. Leafs Nation post game, uh, you'll um, you have heard him and uh, Gord Stellick doing intermissions and post game. Well, not so much post game, but intermissions during the Leaf broadcast that we've been airing on the weekend here on Sportsnet 650. It's uh, it's a fascinating game six. That like uh, I know people love to uh, either hate watch the Leafs or whatever it is. Um, the whole country watches the Leafs. In this moment, as they are ready to hate watch or just enjoy a good hockey game, whatever your whatever your motive is, doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But that game, if you were watching it, you could not take your eyes off it last night. It was that good. And I found it interesting when Kevin Woodley was on just saying, you know, Vasilevsky hasn't really played that well. It's not really a series where a goalie is stolen a game. No. And if I was a Leafs fan, that's probably what would scare me is when is the best goalie on planet Earth going to wake up? Yeah, and he doesn't lose back-to-back games in the playoffs. No, he does not. <laughs> so that's what the – I mean, so, so even though the little bolts are down 3-2 in this series, I'm still picking them to win the series. Yeah. I'm not betting against Tampa, number one, because of Vasilevsky. I'm expecting him to be good in game six. They win the game. And then game seven, even though it is home on home ice for the Toronto Maple Leafs, what reason do we have to bet on them overcoming their ghosts and demons and being good enough to win? Not much. They had this comeback, but I mean, it's one game. It's still not over yet. You get that Tampa team with their experience until game seven on the road. They know how to close it down and shut it down and make it a really low event game. They know how to play that style if they have to. I haven't seen t- Tampa kind of. Tampa had that chance last night in the first period when yep. they had the five on three. Yep. And they were up two nothing. That could have been a real dagger. Bit of hey, a turning point. You know, and they did. They didn't take advantage. And the Leafs got one in the second. They get the second one to tie it up. And next thing you know, they were off and running. Tampa hasn't taken this series seriously enough yet. I like, I, and I'm. Mean, I disagree. But, I don't think Tampa's that good this year. I mean, they're good though. They're good, but they're not. They're not the most talented team in the East anymore. Well, you don't have to be the most talented team in the East to outplay teams when they're on their best. They like, showed I, that in Game Four, sure. And I think a lot of their game kind of like goals and lulls. Like once they were up two nothing, and in the, the second, Tampa just kind of took their foot off the gas. Yeah. And that's been the biggest thing for me with this Tampa team is like, you guys got to respect Toronto a bit more. Right. You know, because Toronto can beat you. And, you know, now that they're down 3-2, maybe that realization has really sunk in because that was an unprofessional way for that team to lose the game. Yeah. Being up 2-0, back-to-back defending Stanley Cup champs, the best goaltender. This is a team that knows how to win games and protect leads in the third period. That, that was an embarrassing game for Tampa. It was uh, it was not great for the Tampa Bay Lightning. I like that John Cooper is uh, kind of playing a little bit of um, mind games with the Leafs too. 
Uh, he, he's been a really interesting listen after some of these games and especially the losses. But I don't want to make this a William Nylander loving, but I'm going to make it a William Nylander loving. I cannot understand how he is such a polarizing player to that fan base. He is everything you want in a expensive but not too expensive forward. (laughs) He plays on your top power play unit is dynamite. Plays in your top six, scores a ton, controls play, drives play, scores goals, great playmaker. He's a really well-rounded offensive Mm -hmm. player. I just, I can't for the life of me figure out why Leafs fans hate William Nylander so much. He's kind of like the new age Phil Kessel. Yeah. To some extent. You don't deserve him. Like, honestly, they don't deserve William Nylander. Guys, he's been their most consistent and best playoff performer every single year, and yet all they do is crap on the guy. He's going to, when he gets traded, because I think it's a when, Yeah, when he gets traded and goes to a different team, he's going to blow up. And this is this, and that's saying something for a guy who's already hit 30 goals twice and was a point-per-game player this season. Yeah, But there's so much more talent in his game that if he gets the opportunity that Matthews and Marner get, and... Yeah, like Brett mentioned, those guys are better as I knock over my water bottle. But those guys are better, of course. Yeah. But there aren't many teams that can say they have two or three forwards that are better than Willie Nylander. It's um, it's it's hard to fathom, you know, because I think in any other market, William Nylander would be a beloved player. Well, and, and I think he can also play center too. Yeah, and and that's something that you haven't seen him do enough because he he ends up playing obviously the wing in Toronto. But he's a guy that has the versatility to play down the middle, too. He came up playing it. Uh, yep. And obviously his dad was a big-time center, Michael Nylander. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I get it with the whole, like, oh, he's soft and, and this sort of thing. Uh, doesn't go in hard on the forecheck. And sometimes you catch him making a mistake on the ice and you blow it up to be something that it isn't. <sighs> This is the problem with playoff hockey is we have this mindset or collectively hockey people watching the game collectively feel like you have to go in hard on every check. You have to play playoff hockey. You've got to you've got to change your style. You got to be more intense, more gritty. It's a, it's a different kind of hockey. I'm the opposite. I don't want a player to change who he is and what makes them special because it's all of a sudden a playoff game. Like if you're asking William Nylander to get in hard on the forecheck and finish his forechecks, that ain't who he is, you know? And in fact, if you are a player that gets off of your game in the playoffs, like a Matthew Kachuk, who's too involved with John Klingberg and is so involved with that, that he can't focus on the things that make him great as an NHL player. That to me is more of a problem. The other player that's doing that, Kevin Fiala. Not a physical player, but he keeps trying to play that game here in the playoffs with Minnesota, and he's been a ghost. He's been a ghost for them. They're relying on Kirill Kaprizov and nobody else. And this is the fine line between adapting your game and changing your game. Because if you're changing who you are, you're not going to be successful. And it goes back to the old saying, right? Anytime a rusher tries to be a crusher, he'll be an usher. And same thing goes for a crusher trying to be a rusher. You know what I mean? Same type of deal. You can't change who you are. But... 
you have to adapt in the postseason, though. There absolutely is an adaptation you have to go through. The game is different. You're not going to have success doing the same things you do in the regular season, but that doesn't mean you have to be a different type of player. It's just finding different ways for you to be successful. How do you gain more space in the postseason? It's more difficult. So how do you find a way to use space? You can do so with physicality, or you do so with using your brain. (laughs) You do so being creative and and using your talents to help you get open a bit more, finding that space. And that's something that Willie Nylander is really good at. No matter what the game is, he's able to find open space. He doesn't need to be physical to do that. Not every player is the same, though. Some players need to be physical because they don't have enough explosiveness. And once the game gets tighter, they're not going to be able to get separation. So you're going to have to... Go through that guy. Yeah. Come hell or push, push or shove. You got to shove that MF. Because if you don't, yeah. you're not getting there. You're not fast enough. You got to do it. But for Willie Nylander, he he doesn't have to do that. He has his pace. He has his speed. He has the short uh, area quickness to get a little space for himself. And that's what it comes down to for me more than anything. How do players adapt in the postseason? Don't try to be something you're not. Uh, it is Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. All right, uh, coming up, overrated, underrated. So get in your thoughts for that on the Dunbar Lumber text line, 650-650. We'll get to some of your submissions on that. What do you want us to debate about? 